Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea, to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the, ma- so the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought, and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up, and cast me forth into the sea, So shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, We beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Please be seated. Good morning. Proverbs 19, 3. 
It says, the foolishness of a man twists his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. Psalm 62, 7 and 8. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. And Proverbs 21, 30. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. I was reading this past week an article dated back at the end of December 2009. Remember the Y2K phenomena? Remember that? And in the article, it was was interesting reading and thinking about crisis. We're going to be looking at and speaking to crisis management, if you will, over the next couple weeks here in Jonah chapter 1. And the writer here was speaking about this millennium bug and in tackling the millennium bug, many departments within distributed organizations work together, sometimes for the first time, to face a common enemy. So Y2K was an interesting phenomenon in that it knew no industry or global bounds. The scope of the problem touched every part of the organization in every country worldwide. It went on to say, give some estimates on the cost involved. It says, hard to say definitely how much Y2K cost the corporate world overall. In November of 99, the U.S. Department of Commerce put the total cost of Y2K remediation at $100 billion. By 2006, the number had climbed. They they published a report that year calculating that the preparation and New Year's Eve costs in the U.S. totaled $134 billion, with an additional $13 billion spent fixing minor problems in 2000 and 2001. And worldwide, organizations were estimated to have spent $308 billion before the millennium on remediation efforts. Not too long after Y2K, there's what we now know as 9-11. September 11th, 2001, changed the face of America in many ways. Terrorist attack on the World Trade Centers, the towers in New York, the Pentagon, the plane that went down in Pennsylvania... America was in crisis management mode for quite some time, and still, no doubt, the effects are there. The landscape of potential threats permeated throughout the country. Security issues have now become of utmost importance. We have contingency plans. We have homeland security measures, schools, businesses, companies, airlines, etc. The deeds of 9-11 have shaped and altered the way things are being done today. There's a multifaceted fear that has manifested itself in the wake of such horrific events of 9-11. So whether you bring up 
Y2K or 9-11, they do share a similar theme of crisis. One seemingly a mere perceived crisis. The other a very real, immediate crisis resulting in the loss of thousands of lives. Both of these crises prompted fear. One was known ahead of time. One came unexpectedly. Yet both of them have left a significant imprint and will continue to serve as markers of history here in this 21st century. So why speak of crisis or or bring up the need for crisis management? Anyone here ever gone through a crisis? If I think if we're honest, most of us, all of us in here are going to raise our hand, okay? If you've not yet, here, here it is, if you've not yet gone through one, hold on, it's probably coming. I see a crisis in the text for today. A crisis of the unexpected kind. Now, when we talk about crisis and and giving some handle, some definition, we could look at it from two ways here. A time of, first of all, a time of intense difficulty, a time of intense trouble, danger. We see this here in our text for today, a divine storm on the sea. The ship itself is in danger. The men on board the ship, real lives are at stake. A crisis also is a time when a difficult or important decision must be made. It could be a series of decisions, important decisions that need to be made in the midst of that moment of crisis. And we look at the text today and perhaps some of the questions when you look at the situation. How are we going to combat this storm? (laughs) How are we going to keep this ship afloat? Who's responsible for this storm? And what needs to happen to get us from point A to point B on the other side of the storm? We see the beginning of our text today, a crisis brewing. Verse 3, where we left off last week. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And as we spoke last week, the motive for why Jonah would flee to Tarshish does not and will never replace obedience to the direct revealed word of God. The Lord gives a directive to Jonah in verse 2. Go to Nineveh, the great city. Cry out against it. Preach against it. For its wickedness has come up before me. So in that directive in verse 2, we see then in verse 3, 
that the text shows man's response to the divine call. And instead of going and preaching, Jonah is found running. Running from the presence of the Lord. If such a thing could be done. When you turn from God, church, and go your own way, however spiritual your motives might seem, when you run from the Lord and willfully turn from His way, you'll find yourself in crisis management. (laughs) Some of you here today, there's a crisis brewing in your life as I speak. You're entering into a time of difficulty. There's trouble around the corner. You see it coming. Or perhaps you recognize that some difficult decisions need to be made. Now the crisis I speak of does not necessarily manifest itself in the physical, visible realm. It may not be tangible Oftentimes the crisis comes into your life when you walk in disobedience to the clear commands of Scripture. You see, crisis gains a foothold when your heart is divided between the Word and the world. You come up with another way. You rationalize why God's way won't work. You build a case for walking in the flesh. And the crisis is upon you. See, the testimony of Scripture is that wayward walking creates distance from the Lord. Amen? The proverb writer says in in 21.16, a man who wanders from the path of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. Jonah in verse 3 finds himself, is where we left him last week. We talked about he was in a safe place in verse 3. Things had worked out for his disobedience. He made his way down to Joppa. He found a ship. Not only did he find a ship, but he also had the resources to be able to get on board the ship. found a ship going anywhere but Nineveh, far away from Nineveh. You see, crisis is already brewing, but there's no immediate danger yet, is there? And and that's, I believe that's what the evil one would have you believe. No cause for alarm. Jonah, things are going to be okay. We need to understand that your crisis is brewing at the point of your disobedience. (laughs) Crisis does not need to be defined by a visible circumstance, i.e. a storm. For Jonah, disobedience to the Lord, created a storm in the heart and the mind. 
And if you have unrepentant sin in your life, you know what I'm talking about. Because you see, the Holy Spirit has a convicting ministry where he calls you out on your disobedience. See, he's all about pointing you toward the truth. He's about guiding you toward the things of Christ. And when you decide to walk contrary to his ways, you will encounter that internal crisis. Paul describes it this way in the scripture in Galatians chapter 5. I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you wish. 24 and 25, same chapter says. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. You know, there are many kinds of crises today. I can't think of a greater crisis, though, than a crisis of the heart. A crisis brought about by my own sin. A crisis that need not be present were it not for my own disobedience. How does God respond to Jonah's sin? Well, he disciplines him in his own way, in his own timing, for his own purposes. And side note on his purposes, we talked about last week the fact that he is a sovereign king. He tends to have multifaceted purposes even as he disciplines his own children. We're going to see that come into play in the text today. Well, verse 4, we see this crisis magnified. The Lord is about to get Jonah's attention. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship was about to be broken up. Enter into the mix a divinely orchestrated storm. The text says, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest. You know, I don't don't get the idea that the sailors saw this storm coming. I don't get the idea that they looked up in the sky and saw, oh, it's getting cloudy. Looks like there could be a storm. You see, at God's beckoning call, he sends out a great wind creating a mighty tempest. I love the adjectives. They fit. Because he is just that. He is a great God and he is a mighty God. And the wind and the waves and all that he's created are subject to what he would have them do. And in this particular moment, in verse 4, the Lord sent out, or the word sent there, hurled. Think about something being 
hurled out. Psalm 119, 90, 91 says, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth. Church, that's big. <laughs> you establish the earth. And it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances. For all are your servants. All. Everything is at, at his bidding. Wind, go forth. Psalm 148.8. In the context of praise the Lord. He, the fire and hail and snow and clouds. And then it says this, stormy wind fulfilling his word. He hurls out a wind onto the sea. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Maybe you've evidenced a tornado and seen the fierce velocity of wind. Maybe you've seen a video of a hurricane and the accompanying winds that wreak large scale damage. God orchestrates this wind on the sea, church. Stirring up the waters and causing an immediate crisis situation for those aboard this ship bound for Tarshish. And the wind is such that the text says the ship was about to be broken up. We get to verse 5. We see then the beginnings of this crisis management. (laughs) Then the mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God. Threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship. Had lain down and was fast asleep. Then the mariners were afraid. By the way, there in verse 5, there's, there's mention back in verse 3, these same mariners are, are simply referred to as them. Jonah was going with them in verse 3. Verse 5 now we get to see the mariners, the group that he's on board with. The mariners were afraid. Now we need to notice something here about the text. The Lord's discipline. Is directed primarily at Jonah. You get the idea that such a storm may never have happened had it not been for Jonah's disobedience. And yet the storm impacts all those in the ship going to Tarshish. The storm perhaps impacts other ships nearby on the sea. We don't have an account of that. Possible. There could have been other ships affected by this particular wind. Jonah may be the direct recipient of God's disciplinary action, but he happens to be on board ship with a bunch of pagan sailors. The text proves that to be true. How in the midst of such a situation is God going to get Jonah's attention. Well, this divine blast of wind 
creating a mighty tempest on the sea, threatening to break the ship up. The sailors are caught up in the crisis. Which perhaps begs the question, is this a righteous judgment upon Jonah? I mean, couldn't, couldn't God have waited until Jonah got off the ship and was by himself before inflicting his discipline? Yes, he could have. But then we need to ask another question. Were the mariners innocent? No. <laughs> One writer speaking to this very point says, God, in thus dealing with them, speaking of the mariners, is, is righteous. God is righteous in visiting upon them transgressions of their own and in punishing them in this particular way, namely, by sending among them a man whose very presence and company involve a storm and exposure to death by means of it. And I was thinking about the scripture and thinking about examples in scripture where this principle is true. And most of us here probably remember the story of Achan. And the word there was, don't take any of the accursed things. These are going to be set apart, consecrated to me. And we see after Jericho is taken, at the beginning of Judges chapter 7, the text says the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Children, plural. Well, that's interesting because what you read in chapter 7 is about the sin of one man. Achan. And you remember the story. They try to go on and, and defeat what oftentimes referred to as lowly AI. And they send some men and they end up getting routed. And Joshua's like, oh Lord, what's going on? And, and God says, get up off of your face. There's sin in the camp. And until you've dealt with the sin, this is my paraphrase, Israel's not going anywhere. So Achan is brought before Joshua, the men of Israel. And when he's called to account, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And at the end of that chapter, we read these words. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold. Those are the three things, right? That he hid and buried underneath in his tent. Took those things This is hard. His sons, his daughters. His oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. Joshua and the men of Israel stoned them, burned them with fire. The end of Joshua chapter 7 says, So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. 
you know, we see, we see examples of this also played out in God's ordained institutions of government, church, and home. You see the principle played out, I believe, in each institution. God's disciplinary measures can be meted out through nations. Can they not? Through his church. And we covered this not too many weeks ago in Revelation 2 and 3. Right? Revelation 2 and 3. You've left your first love. You're dead. You're lukewarm. Repent of your sin or else I'll remove your lampstand. Corinthians 5, 6. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But we also see the principle played out through the household. Speaking to this, one individual writes, A calamity may thus fall righteously upon a whole family for the sake of one guilty member. And in the grief of none of these is God unrighteous, while yet in a sense the whole guilt lies on one. The father of a household may so offend the Lord as that the adequate punishment of his provocation shall not alight solely on his person, but may involve all his house. The fact that these mariners are afraid is significant. These were men of the sea, accustomed to the wind and the waves, men familiar with sea life. They understood the nature of ship navigation. These men, the text says, are afraid. They see the ship about to be broken up, and they respond to the crisis of the moment. See, the text is helpful here in verse 5 because it shows the initial behavior of both the mariners and Jonah. We see, first of all, every man cried out to his God. And you learn something of these sailors pretty quickly. They're not sailing the sea under the banner of the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth. You learn something else here. The sailors are not even in alignment with the gods they call upon. Every man cried out to his God. See, in a moment of crisis, the mariners were without hope. They were without God. Each man calling out to his own God. Perhaps your God will help us. Perhaps your God will spare us from the danger that we're in. This grasping of straws to find a God that works in a time of crisis. as you think about handling crisis situations. You see that the mariners characterize much of the worldly way of thinking. Call upon your God in the day of trouble. Call on the one that works. Call on the one who can liberate you from your problem. Doesn't really matter which God. Any God will do. I just need a bit of help here. To remedy my situation. What about 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is there another God like our rock? Elijah saw the mighty power of God at Mount Carmel. Those other gods were silent. But the God of heaven and earth, he showed himself strong that day. And and this poses a question for you, for me. Where do you turn when crisis hits? Where do you go? What are you relying upon? Is your first recourse to the Lord, to the one alone who has power to save? The mariners found out something on this particular day at sea in the midst of this divine storm. Reliance upon your own God in a time of crisis is futile. Reliance upon multiple gods in a crisis moment is empty. The word of testimony from the scripture is to trust in the Lord with all your heart. The psalmist says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. Psalm 56 Another psalmist says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalmist in Psalm 31 declares, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My times are in your hand. One writer says, we do not know through what scenes of unspeakable danger or distress it may be yet our lot to pass. We may have to witness, we may have to share the overwhelming dangers of the tempest and the shipwreck. We may have to go through that. And I say, all the more reason to believe in Jesus Christ, to receive him as Lord of your life, to trust him as the Savior of your life. To declare like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they were faced with a crisis moment before the king of being thrown into that fiery furnace. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, I love this. But if not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Look what else the mariners did. Verse 5. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. So the mariners, when confronted with a crisis moment at sea, afraid of what they were seeing unveiled before their eyes, they each cried out to his own God. 
and began unloading the cargo off the ship in an effort to keep the ship afloat. Fearing for their very lives, they threw away the cargo. They cast it into the sea. You can picture the frantic, chaotic scene. Just tossing it overboard. Some of you young men probably would have enjoyed that task. Just grabbing stuff and throwing it. Getting it off board. One writer speaking to this says the, that this aspect of tossing things off speaks to the, what he refers to as the infinite littleness and triflingness of all earthly possessions. And it's revealed right here. Why is this not habitually remembered? Why should it need storms and tempest and shipwreck and threatened death to remind men that their souls are infinitely more precious than all earthly things? What are you willing to part with to save your life? You know, I don't know much about the cargo on board that ship. But it went overboard in the time of crisis. It may have been their own cargo. Perhaps it was being shipped on behalf of someone else. It didn't matter in this moment. It didn't matter. Their very lives were at stake and they threw the cargo overboard. Now, context would lead us to believe it didn't necessarily help all that much as evidence from verse 11. It says the sea was growing more tempestuous. (laughs) But these mariners, they were doing all they knew to do. Their options were running out quickly. All they had learned, all they'd been through as experienced mariners, they're desperate to manage the crisis of the moment. Without the Lord in your life, though, managing the crisis of the moment is quite hopeless. (laughs) See, your experiences... Your accomplishments, your merits, your awards, your rank. None of that can save you from the judgment of Christ yet to come, church. None of these things can save you from the pit of hell. None of these things can gain you an interest in the heaven. None of these things are sufficient in the moment of crisis. Paul said in Philippians 3, 7, But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. You might have a lot of things in this world. But it's absolutely, positively a needful thing to have Jesus. And that Christ is in you. 
John chapter 1 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And you see these mariners right here in, in Jonah chapter 1, not comprehending the one true God who came to bring life. And here are these mariners in a time of crisis walking about in darkness, trying to figure out ways to manage the moment. Don't blame them. They were doing what they knew to do. What about those in Christ? What about those who do profess faith in Christ and profess a relationship with this God of heaven and earth? The storm is going on. And the text here in verse 5 gives an account of what the mariners are doing. But the end of verse 5 also gives an account of what Jonah is doing. Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship. Had lain down and was fast asleep. This prophet, this one who worships the God of heaven. The one who professes to have the light of life in him. Going back to John chapter 1. He's found in the moment of crisis to be far removed from the activity. He's found at the bottom of the ship sleeping. I got to thinking. If there was ever a time. When the man of God is needed. Is it not in a time of crisis? And one may speculate on why Jonah's sleeping at the bottom of the ship. And you might be inclined to verbally chastise Jonah at this point. Some may see that his sleeping is simply a result of a physically, emotionally weary Jonah. He's traveled a lot. He's tired. Whatever the case may be, the text says he removed himself from the rest of the mariners... He's at rest. He's sleeping. In the picture we get here in the text, there are two different scenes in the same ship. On deck, chaos, scrambling, tossing stuff overboard, a divine storm wreaking havoc. Rest, relative stillness, Below. Same ship, two different responses. I got to thinking about our homes and how in our homes sometimes there are crises that occur. Crises may be going on in the home. And yet the response from different people may be quite the opposite. Jonah's a prophet of God, a spokesperson for the Lord. And as I thought more about this, I was reminded of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Applying this contextually. 
not just the light of Israel. You are the light of the world. Go to Nineveh. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light, as a believer in the Lord, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jonah, as a representative of the Lord, is sleeping fast at the time of crisis. His sleep is about to come to an end, as we'll see next week. But the snapshot of Jonah sleeping at such a time as this, coupled with the snapshot of the mariners scrambling on deck, doing whatever they can to save the ship, to save their lives, desperation on deck, coupled with desertion, running from God below deck. It's an interesting contrast. The man of God on run against his sovereign king. The man of God called to go and preach is right here in verse 5, silent and sleeping. What's the takeaway here? There's a world around you in need of hearing the truth of Jesus Christ. We live in the midst of pagan mariners who are going through crises of all kinds. You may be aware of crises happening in the midst of some that you know in your sphere of influence, people who are going through a real crisis right now. The voice of truth needs to be heard. The men and women of God have been given the greatest gift of all in Jesus. You know, there was a prayer this past week offered up before one of the games I was officiating. The name of the school is not important. In the midst of the prayer there was something interesting spoken. He was thanking God for the greatest gift he had given. And that was the way it was worded, the greatest gift. And I'm thinking what's going to follow on the heels of the greatest gift given is Jesus Christ. No, that wasn't what I heard. God, thank you for the greatest gift given. The mind that you've given to each one of these players. And I was standing there and it jarred me. Mind? No doubt it's a wonderful thing. The Lord's given us a mind. I can think of a greater gift. The greatest gift we have is that of Christ. And I read Jonah and I think about this you know, you remember the story of Matthew, the, the pearl of great price. 
That needs to be voiced. It needs to be acted upon. Because you see, if you have the precious gift of Christ, then be a witness for Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, when you receive the power from the Holy Spirit, there's a purpose to receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just to say, I have the Spirit. No, the purpose then is to be a witness unto Christ. And we are witnesses, effective witnesses for Christ. When we're allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to work in and through us, and we do what Jesus says in Matthew 5, we let this light shine, the light of life. We have life. We've been given life. How sad it is when we walk around as though we're in darkness. I was telling my son, there's a, there's a gentleman that, that professes to be a believer that I work with and, and, and on the court. and It's, it's almost a, 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 a it's, it's sad to, to work a game with him sometimes because he's such a downer. Does anybody like to be around someone who's a downer? Someone who just like, sucks the life out of you. You ever been around somebody like that? Well, all they think about, all they see is, is the negative, the, the cup half empty. It's like, if you have the light of Christ in you, allow that to be seen on your face. Living a life of repentance. Walking in obedience. Allowing the world to see a light for Christ. And regardless of whether or not any of you in here are football fans, you probably have heard the name Tim Tebow. Right? Here's what I want to say. It ought not take a football field. It ought not take someone of professional NFL status to get the word out. Praise the Lord, he's getting the word out. But it ought not take someone like that. It ought to be occurring, church, in every single one of us who name the name of Jesus to speak of him often, regularly, Readily available on our lips, speaking the name of Jesus Christ. And what a tragedy when men and women of God are running from God and hiding out. What a sad commentary when the people of God are silent and sleeping. Psalm 46 verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. And I leave you with this scripture in Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it, not away from it, and are safe. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life that you give to us through your word. Your word says, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That was Jesus' prayer to you, Father. Oh, Father, I pray that we, the carriers of the good news, carriers of the gospel, this gospel that has been entrusted to us, this gospel that has been entrusted to us, not so that we can just keep it to ourselves and say and proclaim that we have the gospel, we have Christ. No, no, the gospel has been entrusted to us that we might proclaim it to those who do not know. And Father, I pray that you would remind us as believers in Jesus that that gospel needs to be preached to us every day. This is not something just for person outside of Christ. This is for us right now, today. It'll be for us tomorrow and the next day and the next day. We need the gospel. We need to be reminded of the grace by which we're saved. Through faith, not of our own, lest any of one of us would boast. And Lord, we're good at that. Father, I pray that we would humbly submit our will to yours. That your will would be done in and through us. That the things we do, the words that we speak, would be about for your glory and for your benefit. That the time that we have here, it's but a blip on the continuum. We're here for a while and we're gone. I pray, Lord, that we would be like, in this manner, like the mariners, that we would cast off all of these other things that really don't matter a whole lot. But I pray, Lord, we would be courageous and bold to speak about the one thing that does matter. The one thing that we do live for. And that is Jesus. I pray, Lord, that that pearl of great price, that we would be willing to get rid of all. As Paul says, we would count it all for the sake of Christ. As a church, we would walk together. That those who say we have the Spirit of Christ, that together we would walk then in the Spirit. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for this church here at Hope in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that in the moments of crisis that come our way, Father, we would be equipped, we would be ready, that we would walk through a crisis, understanding that you are with us, understanding that we can trust in you for all things because you are our sovereign king. You are our Lord. You are our God. It's not God and but it's God and God alone whom we trust. Thank you, Father, for the word of truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.